Today's sermon text is Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the woman of the slave the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. A lot of scholars will say this is the most difficult passage in Galatians. So we're just going to skip it and go to 5.1 and uh, make short work of it. You know, Paul is at pains, as you can tell, by his repetition, not redundancy, but repetition for the purposes of instruction, of, um, of appealing to the people of God to not get caught up in this cycle of slipping back into seeing our relationship with God built upon the things that we do. We tend to focus more on what we have done for God rather than focus on what God has done for us. These Judaizers, as you know, if you've been here, these Jewish teachers from Jerusalem came and were trying to encourage, you know, a faith and, you know, circumcision, food laws. And, and they were really trying to take these Gentiles and really make them Jewish so that they would be better Christians in this way. And so Paul is a, again appealing <clears throat> to the people, and he's saying to them simply this. He says, listen, it was by faith that you were forgiven. It was by faith that you were adopted as sons and daughters. It was by faith that you received the promises that were given to Abraham. It was by faith <clears throat> that you received the Spirit. It was by faith <clears throat> and not by works of the law that you, you entered the household of God, the the family of God. It's by faith this happens. Law doesn't do this. Remember, law reveals sin. It doesn't rescue it, you from it. It does reveal it, no doubt, but it doesn't rescue you from it. Faith. And so he's going to use this series of contrasts. There's really more than the three I'll point out. But, but he, he kind of goes through these contrasts to keep showing you just the destructive path that that this idea of works and this, you know, kind of home, this human developed sanctification will lead and, and draws us to faith. Now, we all have this tendency. I mean, most of us have this tendency to, to want to keep adding to what God has done, to sit and understand and receive the grace of God that is unilaterally given, that's not contingent upon us, is just hard to grasp. That's why Paul keeps going through it. So we'll look at these series, and 
with each series, it's just one more pound of the hammer <clears throat> to remind us that we have a God who is more gracious than we can imagine. We're more sinful, by the way, than we can imagine. And we're thankful that he's more gracious than we can imagine to even save a people like us. So look with me at these two sons. We'll be looking at two sons, two mothers, and two destinies. So two sons, two mothers, and two destinies. There's probably a hundred ways to do it. That's the way that I arrived at. <clears throat> so two sons, look with me at 21 to 23. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? It's For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. And what's he saying here? <clears throat> well, Paul first is going after these Galatians in the church who were flirting with this idea of adding to the gospel certain conditions, such as circumcision. Or you can put whatever list you want, political views, cultural views, whatever other condition you want to add that you need to have so as to be found faithful with God. He's going to them and he's simply asking the question, he's saying, tell me you who desire to be under the law. When he says you who desire to be under the law, there are people that want to be, you know, measuring themselves by the law, that I'm doing these things right, and I'm avoiding these things that are bad. And, and so they hold themselves and they approach God by means of law, whatever that law might be, even if it's their own law. So he's saying, for those who desire to be under the law, if you, if you want to approach this way, have you listened to the law? He's asking, have you heard what it said to you? Because the law itself says you can't live under the law. It's not just foolish, it's fatal. You can't live under the law. And that's why he turns to Abraham. He gives us this little history lesson on Abraham. Now, most of you probably have heard the name, and many of you have probably read the story. And you know it starts out in Genesis 12, after God divides the nations. He unilaterally calls Abraham to himself and saves him and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're going to be great. You're going to have a nation that comes from your body. You're going to have a land. And you, and through your lineage, the world will be blessed forever. That's quite a promise he makes in Genesis 12. The snag, of course, is that he's married to a barren woman. And so he has no children. And he continues to have no children. In Genesis 15, God comes back and says, no, you will have an heir. You will have an heir. I'm promising you that. And this heir is going to be a blessing to the nations. Of course, then no heir. So we get along through chapter 15. Still no pregnancy, no bump, no baby coming. So in desperation, Genesis 16, Abraham, at the suggestion of his wife, has sex with Hagar. Hagar is the slave of Sarah, his wife, or the maidservant. And so he is going to bring about God's promise by his own effort. And so he has sex with this woman. She has a son, and the son is named Ishmael. He is the son of the slave woman that he's talking about in verse 22. The son of a slave woman. And he's a son, it says, according to the, to the flesh. What's that mean? Well, it means that Abraham, not waiting for God to bring about his divine intervention to bring the heir that he promised, takes matters into his own hands, and he brings about this child through Hagar. So, so Ishmael is this son who's a picture of human effort, human reliance. We want the blessing of God. We want the salvation of God. I'm going to do it this way. 
So he's a picture of human reliance. Now, remember that. Okay, now 14 years pass, and God comes back to Abraham in 17 and says, you're going to have that heir. Now, of course, at this point, uh, Abraham and Sarah just laugh. They're thinking, have you taken a look at us lately? I mean, we are past menopause. We're past that point. It's not going to happen. So he laughs. In fact, at this point, they're 99 and 89. So it should be clear to you, Lord. Well, that, later that year, she conceives. And she has a son, and the son is Isaac. He's the son of the free woman that we're speaking about here. But you notice that he's not a son according to the flesh. He's according to the promise. He's not a son according to the flesh because there's no way that's possible. He was only by divine intervention. It was a supernatural work of God to bring forth Isaac. It was not the coming together of a man and a woman. God may have designed that to bring about the purposes of having children. This case, he's a child of promise. It's a picture. It's a type of how God brings new life. So he divinely intervenes and brings forth this child. That's why he's called a child of promise. So here's what Abraham learns. Oh, it's the trusting in the promises of God that lead to the blessings. It's not achieving the blessings by human effort. So you see the two sons, different mothers, one's slave, one's free, one's of the flesh, one's of the promise. So you have a picture here that is given to us that Abraham learned. I can trust in the promises of God, and when I trust in those alone, he will bring about the deliverance that I need, not by the works that I do. So there's a picture there. Now, let me just take a, a quick aside here and remind you of a couple things about the nature of God that, that I just rejoice in telling you because it's our, it's our ground of hope. First, do you see the faithfulness of God? You know, so many times things go awry and we begin to wonder where is God with us and is God really trustworthy? And you see the faithfulness of God and he keeps his promises. So go all the way back to Eve. You know, Eve was given a promise of a son that would bring about deliverance. And, and that, that went on to Shem, and that went on to Abraham. It went on to Isaac and Jacob. These same promises, you trace them through scriptures, and you see them all the way to David. And then, of course, the promise that God had made to bring deliverance to a people. So the whole thing started in Genesis 3. We're moved out of the garden. We're separated from God. That's the problem. God promises to fix the problem. And so they're waiting for this promise coming through the seed or a son. And of course we see that as we're approaching Advent even. We see this in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. He's the child of promise. He is the child of promise. Isaac is a type of it, but Jesus is the antitype. He is the child promise. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God... They're yes in Christ. So all those promises that God was making to the people through the prophets, they're yes in Christ. This is interesting. So Paul, when he's before King Agrippa in chapter 26 of Acts, he's on trial. His life is being threatened. And here's what he says. I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. 
as they earnestly worship day and night. He's saying that's the difference between the Jews and me. I, my hope is in the promise that has come. The promise is Christ. See, God makes promises to us. We're called to trust them. There's so much striving effort. Instead of just resting and trusting in God, when Carol and I were overseas, we were always trying to make, make a nickel go farther than it will go. And oftentimes we would always turn to Matthew 6 and we'd say, there it is. Don't worry about what you eat, drink, wear. Your Heavenly Father knows you need these, need these things. You look at the birds of the air, look at the flowers of the field. God takes care of them. How much more important are you? And we'd have to go to those promises and say, well, are we going to believe these or not? We can fret, we can worry, which is a type of work, or we can rest in these promises. Now, we did that sometimes. Other times we fretted and worried. But reminded that the promises are there. God is faithful to you. So to the degree that you're struggling with issues of finances or personal struggles, health issues, you know, the promise boxes, <clears throat> your grandmother's probably had them, and the little boxes, and they're just scriptures taken out, oftentimes out of context. That's why I don't love the promise boxes. But you pull out a promise, and it, it has a promise that you can believe. But I like the idea, because what we're being reminded of is God has promised to care for his people, and we can trust him in that. That's what he's calling us to do. God's not a man that he'll lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That's what Moses asked. No, he does. So, so even now, trust him to be good to you in the midst of your struggle. Reach out. Say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to trust in you in the midst of whatever dilemma you're facing. The second thing you see about God is God does give birth to to these children of promise. It's God's work. You see it's a barren woman who gives birth to a son. It's a picture of how God redeems us. That if you're a Christian here, you're a Christian here because God has given you life. You don't work your way into the faith. You may appreciate, you may appreciate its reason, its reasonableness. You may appreciate a lot of things, but you don't work that way. So if you believe in Christ singularly for your salvation and you are filled with the Spirit, that is God's unilateral work giving birth to you. You know, in John, uh, the apostle writes, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of human descent, not born of a husband's will, not born of human decision, but born of God. So all new birth, like Isaac, comes from God. Now, you may not always feel like a close child of God, but those of you who find yourself trusting, leaning into Christ completely, being convicted by this, that's a work of God. It leads us to gratitude, and it leads us to humility. Because none of us did it, you know? We, we just received it, and we're, we ought to be thankful for it. But there's one other thing you see about God in this passage. He works with the barren. He doesn't go to the strong. He goes to the barren, and he brings forth life. A person that was barren in this culture was considered cursed of God. And yet God uses those that we deem cursed, they're sick or they're struggling or they're weak or they're not very gifted. God uses those to achieve his divine purposes. It's just remarkable. 
I mean, you see it, you know, because in Sarah, you see a barren woman give birth to Isaac by the grace of God. He's the child of promise. But there's another woman who's going to give birth to the true child of promise, and it's even a greater work than a barren womb. It's a virgin womb giving birth. But what this teaches us about the character of God is nobody can say, I don't belong here. Nobody can say, I've fallen too far. The amount of times I've heard People kind of write themselves out of God's script because they're not pretty enough, they're not smart enough, they're not gifted enough, they haven't done enough. You know, so many of us compare ourselves to so many in this room, and we always come up wanting, and we always come up weaker or less than others. And yet God's, by his own design, he uses the barren, the weak, the broken to achieve purposes that are for his glory and our joy. So, so let me just remind you one more time. If you are here and you are struck with an inferiority complex and you don't have this and you don't have that, and you haven't had that experience, you don't have this degree, turn to God. He uses the barren, the weak, the troubled, the, stro- the um, troubled to do his greatest work. He uses suffering to achieve purposes of which only suffering will lead us to see things about God that nothing else will. So you see the character of God here. And we want to be, at the end of the day, we love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is the stuff that fuels the love. Okay, so you see these two sons, right? Paul's going to interpret these two sons. This is where it maybe gets a little bit deep. So he's going to give his interpretation, his allegorical interpretation. Uh, Look with me back at chapter 4, 24, and 25. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So that's important right there. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. That's 26. So he's, he's speaking allegorically. Now, this is really gets fun. Because, you know, allegorical interpretation, or at least allegorical interpretive methods, used to be the thing of the day in the Middle Ages. And, and you would, you would, it's, an allegory is oftentimes, usually, it tends to discount or even deny the historical reality, and it puts new meanings for old realities. And so allegorical interpretations, you can come up with making the Bible say anything you want about anything. And so the church has generally turned away from allegorically interpreting Scripture. So saying that is Paul giving us an allegory. Well, let me try to explain. I think Paul doesn't deny the historical reality of Adam and Abraham and Sarah because he's already used them in chapter 3 to explain his points. So he believes fully in the historical veracity of these biblical characters. I think what he's doing is taking a truth that you see in Sarah and Hagar, these two mothers, He's taking a spiritual truth that you see in them, and he says, this truth is also illustrated here in the two covenants. I don't think he's equating them. It's more of an analogy. So he's seeing a truth, and he says, you see that truth over here in these two women. When Hagar was spoken about in Genesis, Sinai covenant hadn't even been done. So I think he's just taking a truth and applying it. Now, what's he doing here? Well, he's saying these two women in some ways teach us 
about these two covenants. Now, these two covenants, the one is from Sinai. That's Hagar. That's the children of slavery. Look with me. He says, one is from Mount Sinai. That, you think, Moses, you know, the, the law, the Mosaic law, bearing children for slavery. If you try to live according to this law, you will find yourself enslaved. This is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Remember, she's the father of Arabs. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So what he's saying is this. If you want to live, remember he's talking to these Judaizers, present Jerusalem would be the teachers coming from Jerusalem saying, hey, listen, you have to believe, but you also have to do these various other godly things in which you can really become good in your Christianity. So they're adding that Mosaic law. Now these Judaizers particularly were saying, you've got to be circumcised. That is the mark of being of the people of God. And you have to watch what you eat in terms of food laws. And you have to observe the certain holy days, specifically the Sabbath. So, but there's a hundred other things that we can add, right? It's, you have to have a certain length dress. You have, to, you have to dress a certain way. You have to educate your kids a certain way. You have to read a certain version of the Bible. You have to abstain from this and this and this. You can add whatever, or you have to think this way politically, or you have to think this way culturally. So you can add whatever you want to the list, but it's these adding of conditions. This is what Paul's going after is, there's two covenants, there's two ways. The one is Hagar. It's representing kind of Sinai, this adding to the grace that we have in Christ, and it leads to slavery. And that's what this present Jerusalem is teaching. And that's what you Galatians are fearing. And that's what we ought to fear. Because I'll tell you, it's fundamental to us to want to layer on. Now he says there's another covenant. And this covenant, he doesn't name it. Do you notice that? He just says Jerusalem from above free, and she's our mother. Now, what's he speaking about here? Look in 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, what does that mean? Is, this, is he referring to the Abrahamic covenant? Is he referring to the new covenant in Christ? I don't know. I, probably the Abrahamic covenant. But either way, they're connected because they're both covenants of grace, and the new covenant fulfills. That promise given to Abraham was fulfilled when Jesus came and said, a new covenant I give to you that in my blood I'm making a new covenant. So, so what you have here is this covenant of, of grace is what it is. Isaiah says it's a covenant of peace. Uh, Paul says you can live following Hagar and Ishmael and lead yourself into slavery, or you can live in this covenant called Jerusalem from above, this covenant of grace where God unilaterally has saved you. You can't add to it, though. You just have to sit back. You have to enjoy it. And then, and then naturally love will flow to him, the one who cut this covenant in his own blood. So this is a covenant, it's, from, it's Jerusalem above. I think it's reminding us of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, we don't see it yet, it will come down to this earth, but the new Jerusalem is, is God's covenant of grace, drawing the people into freedom through the power of the gospel. For all those who believe in Christ. That's why she's a mother. She's producing children. Uh, people coming to faith. Like all of us, the believers here, we are been brought, we've been brought into a covenant. We've been reborn. We've been rebirthed by God. And now we're part of this covenant of Jerusalem from above. That's why 
it leads to rejoicing. You notice in verse 27, look at 27, he says, it's written again. He's going back to the Old Testament. In this context, he's going back to, or in this case, Isaiah 54. Look what he says. For it's written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Now, that's unusual. Most barren women don't rejoice. He says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. That's supposed to catch our attention. Wonder what's he saying here? He says, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So Isaiah is preaching to the people who are in exile. So Jerusalem is a burn-down situation right now. And he's saying, no, you can rejoice, even though she looks desolate, even though she looks barren. You rejoice. You can cry out. You can worship God even right now. Why? Because she's going to have more children. Jerusalem's going to explode again with life. This new Jerusalem is going to explode with life. Do you see what Isaiah is promising? He's promising a new covenant is going to come. People are going to be drawn into it. That desolate one that looks so dead, oh no. Children are going to be coming. People are going to be coming in. Jerusalem's going to be made new. A new covenant is coming. Don't go back to the old covenant. Stay with this covenant. Don't be tempted. Fight it. So what he's showing us here is two ways to approach God. Uh, the covenant of, of works, this legalism, and you know what legalism is. Just went through it a moment ago. It's adding conditions to the gospel. It's making minors majors. It's an over-concern for external. It's all the, and what legalism does, and we all feel it, because we move in judgmentalism, and we begin to think, well, they're not doing what I'm doing. And they're not handling it like I'm handling it. And whatever law that we've established for ourselves, we begin to use that as a measurement of judging ourselves and others. We tend to come out a little higher than others do, but we use it to judge others. It leads to not just judgmentalism, but reductionism. It takes this glorious gospel that was formed before the foundation of the world, and it boils down to just do this and this and this and this, and then you're good to go. And it reduces this beautiful gospel into something that it is not entirely. And it creates self-righteousness, if you're good. If you're bad and you, don't, you break the law a lot, then it creates despair. But here's the real problem with legalism. It gets us focusing on these external things while issues like pride, lust, greed, envy, anger, those things seething in our soul, they never get looked at. And so we think, hey, we're doing pretty good. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not committing murder. Here, I think I'm in good shape. Because we're using those as measurements and approaches to God. And it, it leads to death. It absolutely leads to death. It leads to slavery. And then you bear the curse of the law. There's another way, though, and that's the way of grace. The way of grace is this being a child of promise. This is the Jerusalem above. And now listen, the only people that really are attracted to this kind of covenant of grace are those who think they really need it. You know, those prostitutes and tax collectors that are getting ahead into the kingdom or getting into the kingdom ahead of Pharisees and those who had their lives somewhat put together. You know, this is the gospel of grace. This is overwhelming kindness. It's through faith and faith alone. That's what we just read, though, in chapter 3, 26. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons and daughters of God through faith. Faith alone. 
He says in 29, And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Then you are children of promise. So it, as you sit and listen to me, do you consider yourself a child of promise or a child of the flesh? I mean, do you trust explicitly, wholly, completely? This is the way you enter into the Christian faith. This is how you become a Christian. For those of you young, you've been here a little bit, and you're not sure, this is, it's, it's putting our faith in a God who would give a son who would live in a righteous way so that we in his stream can be made righteous, his righteousness is ours, and our sins are taken by his own death on the cross. Faith in this Messiah, this servant of God, is what saves us. But it keeps saving us, because we read back in chapter 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, and yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith. So we live by, we're saved by faith, and we live by faith. And living by faith means I'm trusting him today to give me life, godliness, everything I need to finish this life. I'm not looking at what I've done. I'm not looking at where I've become. I'm thankful for the changes he's brought in my life, and there have been great changes. But those, to me, don't save. It's, those are reflections of his saving grace, but what saves is Christ and Christ alone forever and ever. They'll always be that. So, so that's, he's giving us these two roads. So we have these two sons, which show us this child of flesh and child of promise. We have these two mothers, right? One is, you know, a slave, one having children born into slavery, and the other is free. But notice now we have two destinies. Look with me at 28, uh, 28 to 31. It says, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's how Isaac is a type, you know. We're like Isaac. Why? Because we're children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also is it now. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son? For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So I, I think Paul's saying this. There's two sons. Be warned by that. There's two mothers, right? One leads to slavery. One leads to the Jerusalem above and rejoicing. And now we've got two destinies. We have two paths, don't we? I, I mean, notice, there's going to be the persecutor and the persecuted. And he's trying to tell Christians, Paul thinks well of these Galatians. He says, now you brothers and sisters, you are children of promise. I believe that. Paul believes that. But he's warning them, the implications of being a child of promise is that you're going to be persecuted, and, and the people who are going to be persecuting you are, look, it's Ishmael. It's our half-brothers. It's the other religious people. I think what he's saying is these Judaizers are, were persecuting the Galatians because they were coercing them to get back under slavery. In other words, what he's saying, I think, is simply this, that being a child of promise the destiny involves persecution, not the Roman Colosseum feed to the lions type. I, I think that comes to very few Christians. I think the bulk of persecution that the Christian, the child of promise faces, is the marginalizing, the ostracizing from other religious people. It's, it's the Jews that were persecuting them, these half-brothers, he calls them, because they don't like a gospel of grace. 
we do have an aversion to grace. I mean, we do. You know, Jesus taught that parable about the landowner that went into the marketplace and hired workers to work the fields. He got some at 9 a.m. and 12 a.m., 12 p.m. and 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. And they all went out and worked the field. At 6.30 or 7 o'clock, he calls them all in and gives them all the same wage. Well, the, the people that started at 9 and the people that started at 12 are kind of, they're miffed as we all feel the same because if we were there at 9 a.m., and the guy that got out there half an hour before the whistle blew, and he got the same pay I got, which one of us wouldn't be saying, something's wrong? Even though we got exactly what he said we would get, we'd all say, something's amiss. We are averse to It's hard. We just want to add to it. God helps those who help themselves, right? No. We're just averse to grace. I mean, pure grace, I mean. I mean, I mean, grace and a little bit of me is okay, but all grace, I'm just sitting there like this. I, I don't feel good about that. But, but what he's saying is that, that that's where much of the persecution comes. So you have Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, and just try this as a test case if you want. Prove me wrong. Just go up and, and talk to some of your relatives who are religious people, but maybe they don't truly understand this gospel of grace, and speak to your appreciation for God giving a son, unilaterally saving us, and that we did nothing for it. We, we are humbly receiving a gift that he's given to us. That generally, as I used to do this with my relatives, they would say, oh, no, 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 you're a good boy, Tom, you're a good boy. I'm like, come on, really? Or, or, or I remember still having the conversation with my father. I mean, it went from zero to ten in just a moment because it doesn't accord with our sense of justice, our sense of you know, merit. So, so that's what he's saying, that we will have oftentimes scuffles with those who are religious people because they struggle with grace. But notice how he says to get through those persecutions. He says that we are going to inherit the promise. Notice he says, he refers to back to Genesis, he says, he says, what's the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. He's telling us that those who come drawn by grace, adding law, will be cast out. Religious people, I never knew you, Jesus says. What Paul's doing here is that verse in Genesis, that was applied by Jews to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were the ones who were going to be cast out. And Paul's saying to the Jews, you who don't believe in Christ, you who are going back under the law, you will be cast out. You will be the Gentile. You'll be the son of Ishmael. You're not a son of Abraham and Isaac. You're a son of Ishmael. You're a son of Hagar. I mean, that would have been, that would have been significant. And he's saying to us that we, the children of promise, so looking at the inheritances that we have, the cosmic world that will be given to the children of promise, that is more than adequate. The present-day sufferings aren't to be compared with the glories that he will reveal to those who love him. That's what he's, so Paul's appealing to us. I'm appealing to us. Fight the tendency we have to move back into a religion in which you assess God's love for you based on what you do for him. Why don't you assess God's love for you by what he did for you? And maybe that ought to be the basis of whether we think God loves us. So we have these two sons. We have two mothers. 
we have these two destinies. He has given us a destiny now to be free. You know, we're not going to go there, but if you look at 5.1, he says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. See, understanding the gospel, we're now free. I, again, I mentioned this a few weeks back. I'm not talking about some personal autonomy where you get to do, have license to live any way you want. I'm talking about a better freedom, a, a freedom that means you're free to, to worship and enjoy God without the hindrances of, of the sins that you've committed, the burdens that you've carried, the mistakes that you've made. Those are washed away. You're, you're free to love them. You fail yesterday, you're free to love them two minutes after you fail. Repentance and faith, that's how we're going to make it to the end. You're free to serve God. You're free to sacrifice. You're free to give of your money. You're free to give of your life. Why? Because you have an inheritance. You have all the promises of Abraham. God has assured you there will be nothing. There will be no discontented people with him. You will have everything. So knowing that, we're free people. We're even free of the fear of death. Because Jesus said, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death in Hades, right here. I hold them. I own the joint. I own everything. I'm sovereign over everything. So we're free people. We don't have to fear governments. We don't have to fear takeovers. We don't have to fear wokeism. We don't have to fear any of those things. Those, those, read Ezra, Nehemiah. You read those. You see, God can work through pagan kings, like he can work through kings that he appoints. We don't have to feel that we're free. We're free people. And this should lead to happiness and humility. Let's ask God to open our eyes to these truths so that they move from you now understanding them in some degree of better measure into in our relationships with our spouses and our children and our workplaces and all the worries and the fears that you have they're going to crumble before this one who has unilaterally saved you and for remember now for those this isn't by this isn't a gift to you because you're here this is to the soul that has come by faith and trust in this messiah that god has offered to us so let's pray for just a, quietly for a moment and then i'll pray for us